exclusive podcast from Impact 89FM. WDBM East Lansing. 89FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, the first phase of jury selection is underway for the man of cues of trying to blow up a Detroit-bound airliner on Christmas in 2009. That's according to, the Mich- to Michigan Radio. So far, five of the 17 jurors questioned have been excused. Umar Farouk Abdulmatab shouted, Sheikh Anwar is alive upon entering the courtroom. He also said, I will defend Muhammad and liken the U.S. to a cancer. And in national news, Apple has unveiled the latest iteration of its iPhone, according to the BBC. The iPhone 4S, as the model will be known, boasts an improved camera and significantly extended battery life. The iPhone 4S, which will go on sale October 14th, will be available in 16-gig, 32-gig, and 64-gig models in both black and white. And in local news, Michigan State University's President Luanna K. Simon condemned a string of racial incidents that have erupted on campus, according to the Detroit News. Michigan State University's Black Student Alliance will hold a town hall meeting tonight at 745 in Conrad Hall. The incidents began last month when a student cleaning one of the university chemistry labs found a black doll hanging from a makeshift noose. More incidents continued last week when an Acres Hall student reported that someone had written a racial slur on a dorm room's door's dry erase board. The room had four occupants, but only one was an African-American student. A few days later, students reported the N-word written on a wall in Armstrong Hall, which is typically occupied by freshmen. Students are saying that these are hate crimes. And on Exposure tonight, we'll be talking about how MSU is helping coffee farmers in Africa. And you will also learn about an MSU study that discovered the difference between people who learn from their mistakes and people who do not. And in the studio right now is the Mid-Michigan Bluegrass Association, and they're here to talk about their upcoming performance season and play some tunes for us. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. So let's go around. Can you introduce yourselves and what instruments you play? Uh, My name is Leroy Harvey. Tonight I'm playing the banjo. I'm Jeff Wilmore, and I'm going to be playing the guitar and the fiddle. I'm Russ Davis. I'll be playing the guitar. I'm Henry Casillas, and I'm playing a mandolin. So tell me about the Mid-Michigan Bluegrass Association. How long has it been around for, and what is it that you guys do? It has been around for over 35, closer to 40 years. And um, I met Jeff way back then. So we come from the very beginning of the thing, and it has progressed from Luton School, and even before that it was at other places like Boar's Head Theater and places like that, but ended up at Luton School for many years. Then it was down for five years because there was no place to have it. <clears throat> so I ended up organizing the thing, getting it started back up again, and we went out to the Delta Haven Church on the back of the um, the Art Van store on West Saginaw. And that was cool. It was four, five, five years? Yeah, five years off five there. years. Mm-hmm. And then last year, we lost that place. So we got accepted over at the Wildemar Nature Center. What a cool place. We got one full year under our belts there, and we're ready for another. And you guys will be performing the third Sunday of every month at Wildemar Nature Center. That's right. 
And what time do, do those performances usually take place? Uh, we start around 2 o'clock and go till 7. And uh, that gives us an extra hour in the afternoon, so we actually have more time for stage performances. You guys will be performing in a nice barn, I understand. Yes, it's an excellent place. Yes, it's the old barn out there. It's been it's heated and it, and uh, it looks really nice, restored, and uh, it's comfortable in the winter time. And so, we'd love to see you. One one of the cool things about it is there's a bunch of jam rooms, so you can you can have your own jam. You can uh, also sign up to play on the main stage. So it's kind of a democratic uh, musical opportunity. Very it's very. It's a chance cool. to hear the music or play and perform if you want to. So. Well, without further ado, would you guys be willing to play a song for us? Mm -hmm. Sure. We're going to sing a song called Last Letter Home. Association. They'll be performing at the Waldemar Nature Center every third Sunday of the month from 2 p.m. until 7 p.m. So I'm curious, can you guys talk about the bluegrass community here in, in Michigan and um, what, the, what that community is like? Is it, is it something that's growing? Is it declining? Is it, you know, what's the, what's the general age of people it, that are in that it's, community? It's growing, and what's interesting is young people... Well, a lot of us started when we were young, but they get to carry on the tradition of what we're doing, and most of us are over 40, and, and 
it's it's never going to fade away. As a matter of fact, in the tough economy, the one two things that are actually increasing one is volunteering in America and music. And traditionally in, in America, music's been very popular even in the hard times. So, uh, so this will be so also. There's a couple of the hottest bluegrass bands in Michigan playing tomorrow night at the Loft. Um, the Flatbellies, a local band in their 20s, are, are kicking off um, a CD release party for Green Sky Bluegrass from Kalamazoo. And they're probably in their 30s, and they're one of the best bluegrass bands in the country, really. Excellent. Yeah. Can, you, can you, someone talk about kind of the history of bluegrass music? Um, well, bluegrass comes from the state of Kentucky, and Bill Monroe probably made it as famous as anybody, and Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, um, it, like uh, Leroy was talking about earlier, um, it's, it's a spin-off from the Appalachian music, and um, if you would like to elaborate on that one. Oh, there have been some movies that have popularized uh, bluegrass over the, the last few years, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Deliverance, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? More recently, Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> <laughs> you want to say anything? And uh, what what do you think defines bluegrass music as opposed to folk music or country? What 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 makes bluegrass bluegrass? Okay, fo there's there's um, folk music and old timey music where they play claw hammer banjos and fiddle tunes. They base everything's on fiddle tunes. Or bluegrass is based a lot on harmonies and instrument breaks, where. Um, and the interesting thing about bluegrass music is there's really no limits on the, the styles of music, it, but you'll always have the same elements of sound. And so, I mean, you could do a Beatles tune, which bluegrass bands do, where if you do folk music or old-timey, it's traditionally based on barn dance music where the fiddle plays and people dance. So that's a little bit of it. Very good. Well, would you guys be willing to play another song for us? Sure, sure. Well, we're not just uh, bluegrass. We have folk, too, if you're interested in playing some folk music. Mm -hmm. Or in the jam sessions that are in each individual room. So come on out. Mm-hmm. That's right. Play a couple of songs. Uh, here's a little medley of uh, one's called My Walking Shoes. Another song is uh, written by the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe. It's called Hallelujah, I'm Ready to Go. shoes don't fit me anymore. My walking shoes don't fit me anymore. Stay on the side of town.
And in the studio is members of the Mid-Michigan Bluegrass Association, and they were performing a few songs for us. They will also be performing at the Waldemar Nature Center every second uh, Sunday of the month from, oh, sorry, third Sunday of the month. I am I stand corrected. From 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, for more information, go to re-news.net backslash mnb or waldemar.org, and that is W-O- L-D-U-M-A-R dot org. Anything else you gentlemen would like to add for this evening? Just we'd love to see you. All right. A rare opportunity to see two of Michigan's best bluegrass bands tomorrow night at the Loft. Flat Bellies and Green Sky Bluegrass. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming in tonight and sharing some music with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we, uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could, uh... Would you ever want to, um... <coughs> I was wondering if you... If I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, <clears throat> I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. That's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No! Don't touch me! What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Dan Clay is the director of MSU's Global Programs in Sustainable Agri-Food Systems, and he's here to talk about a program in Africa to help sustainable coffee production. Welcome to the show, Dan Clay. Thank you. So I understand MSU has a lot of involvement in, um, the, in, in the country called Burundi, and um, you guys are doing lots of stuff there. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in Burundi. Where is Burundi located, and, and mm. how are you guys helping out? Well, Burundi's in East Africa, uh, in the highlands of East Africa. It's a uh, very small country, uh, borders Rwanda, and I know some of your listeners are familiar with Rwanda uh, from our other projects. And just to the south is Burundi, um, a very small country, very mountainous, uh, with lakes and uh, quite a beautiful place. And describe the quality of life there for most people. Well, you know, Burundi is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, 90% of the population is in agriculture and largely subsistence agriculture. So they eat what they produce, trade a little bit, uh, and then there is uh, production of coffee and tea, which is their primary exports. 
Yeah, I understand that that 68% of its 8.3 million residents live in poverty. And coffee is a livelihood of 800,000 farmers. And um, also coffee accounts for 80% of the East African country's exports. So that's that's a lot of people relying on coffee. Indeed. So um, where does the money from Burundi coffee, where does that go towards? Well, you mean the, the, the money that is earned by, mm-hmm. by uh, producers? Yes. That's, uh, you know, that's what's, what's used to pay school fees, and that's what's used to uh, pay medical and, and to buy food uh, for, those, uh, for those items that are not produced locally and, uh, and, and all other costs, really. I mean, that, the coffee is the, is the primary cash income of nearly the entire country. Can you talk about the quality of life for coffee workers in most coffee markets across the world versus Burundi coffee well, farmers? Yeah, I, Burundi is is again one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, and 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 coffee is produced all over. Coffee is produced in, uh, as as you, you, I'm sure you know, in Central America and South America and Indonesia and and really across the globe in tropical areas. And many of those areas, uh, coffee farmers are doing much better than than they are in in parts of East Africa. But the the thing that that really excites me about coffee in particular uh, and production around the world is that coffee. Uh, is that the highest quality coffees are grown in highland areas, often mountainous areas, and you in uh, mountainous tropical areas. And you ask the question, where are the poorest people in the world? And that's where they are. All right, and that's where coffee grows. And so this is a real opportunity for coffee producers to, especially if they improve coffee quality, uh, and and can access. Uh, some of the global markets that are paying uh, top dollar for very good coffees. Uh, this is the opportunity, one of the great opportunities for smallholder producers to, to benefit from. Now, I understand that Burundi also um, had a civil war, which, it, which obviously affected the country. Can you talk about how that, that may have impacted um, coffee production? Well, it did in, in many ways. The Civil War, instability affects risk in many ways. I mean, it is risk, and and risk affects how people produce and their willingness to invest. And in the case of coffee, it's no, it's no different. So through that whole period of conflict that lasted more than a decade, 15 years uh, in the end, uh, you saw that the Burundi coffee that was once very strong, actually, back in the 1980s, uh, was diminished, and there was a coffee embargo, actually total economic embargo. So there was no, there were very little exports of coffee from Burundi. Uh, many producers just backed away, didn't maintain their their coffee fields, uh, uh, much lower production, and now they're just trying to get that back as they uh, come out of that conflict period. Can you tell us about the Burundi Coffee Database and Knowledge Network? That's an interesting. That's an interesting piece of, of our of the MSU project in in Burundi, and it's one that is uh, has been especially uh, exciting for all of us because it's a it, what it, what the, the 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 database and it's a, it's a website and a database and a and a basically a. Um, um, a network platform for all members, all players in the in the Burundi coffee value chain, right from producers through processors 
to uh, exporters, importers, uh, roasters in the U.S. and elsewhere, and, of course, consumers. And it becomes a resource for all of those players. And they're, they're, it's open access. Uh, others can contribute to it. And uh, it, it basically, the, the purpose is to help help that value chain, help the Burundi coffee sector uh, become as profitable as possible and as, um, as uh, um, in the end, sustainable and, and prosperous uh, for everybody involved in it. Can you also talk about the Intercafe Burundi? Intercafe is, a, is actually a new, um, uh, it's a trade association. Uh, it's the coffee trade association that brings all of the actors in the coffee sector together, uh, along with the government, uh, regulations, regulators and policy, producers, processors, and so forth. And it it supports uh, it supports that entire uh, sector, and and through training, through research, through uh, access to markets. Uh, and uh, and through, of course, the regulatory and policy side, and and that is, in fact, the 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 lead, the the, the centerpiece for MSU's work in in the in the database and knowledge network because that whole system, the platform, will is soon to be transferred to Intercafe, uh, which is the as I say, the trade organization that will will run that in the future. So how long has MSU been involved with um, the coffee industry in Burundi, and, and how have you seen the changes since MSU's been involved? We, we Well, we just back up a little bit. We started in, in Rwanda uh, around 12 years ago and, and completely uh, helped to revitalize and transform that industry. Burundi looked on. Burundi was still in its conflict period during during that that whole stretch or much of it, and they looked on and said, "We know what has what MSU has done in in Rwanda next door. We want to do the same thing." And so that's that's basically has been the inspiration. But uh, so MSU started there about five years ago. Uh, with our initial work, and uh, now we're four years into the current project with one year to go and a lot of uh, great success. So you're talking about Rwanda coffee, and, and, and um, you know, right now for this interview we're talking about Burundi, and I noticed that um, Paramount Coffee sells the coffee that comes from Burundi, and I noticed that, you know, when we, we go to the Sparty cafes here on campus. It's usually Rwanda coffee that I, that I see. Mm -hmm. So is that also going to Paramount? That these projects in Burundi and Rwanda, they're Paramount right here, located in Lansing. Yes, Paramount Paramount's coffee. been a, a fantastic partner in this in this whole whole uh, both of those projects, both of those areas, and uh, just uh, it's been a very exciting relationship. And uh, in fact, at the institute, we also have uh, a uh, and it's an endowment fund that that um, um, Paramount Coffee contributes to every year. And that those are resources that get turned around and put into producers. And, and this past year, we bought a new uh, depulper for the main washing station producing the coffee, the Rwanda coffee, to 
uh, paramount. We're, we're hoping to do the same thing in Burundi. So uh, I expect, and actually um, Paramount Coffee has begun to import Burundi coffee as well. So soon we're going to be seeing that um, in local markets, and I hope here on campus. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Now, is is all this coffee either with the projects in Rwanda or in Burundi, is it what would, would people would say free trade? Um, Free trade or fair trade? Fair trade, sorry, fair trade. Yes, fair yes. trade. Okay, um, much of the Rwanda coffee has been fair trade, yes. Uh, and uh, But the, the fair trade is a certification process that takes a, quite a long time and uh and uh typically 3 or 4 years and so we're just now introducing certification in Burundi uh right now there's uh what we what's this one certification which is called UTS UTZ UTS certified uh which is very similar to fair trade uh and so that has taken hold and has had a huge impact to be honest in in Burundi uh, and so we're looking for that to expand, and we're, we're anticipating that fair trade certification will be uh, coming in the future as well. So speaking of fair trade, I also noticed um, when I was researching um, on there's, – there's a lot of articles on MSU's news website about these projects, and um, they said that coffee growers are historically among the lowest paid in the region, in Africa. And then they also said that most people in Burundi don't even drink coffee, and that's, that's right. a livelihood for so many people. So I'm curious, when, when you talk about – when you see that type of information and you see a lot of hype around fair trade, I'm curious, what is the livelihood for a lot for, – for most coffee growers – with all across the world um the, the, well the, the the it tends to be as i mentioned in, in the highlands of the of the tropics which are among the poorest areas where other things don't necessarily grow very well where you you don't have technology you can't use tractors in the mountains and and so forth so this is a uh crops like coffee and tea that grow that that require a a, a large a great deal of hand labor for very high quality coffees uh is ideally suited for some of these places and and so uh in 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 most of these countries we, what we find is that coffee is is the main source of cash income but not necessarily the main source of food and uh which is often grown uh on the farms and so forth so uh, again, very poor, but with uh, terrific opportunities, especially with the the new specialty coffee markets that um, that require the kind of uh, of uh, the the kinds of um, labor investments and some of the technologies that uh, you only get with small holders. And what does that mean by specialty coffee? Specialty coffees, basically gourmet coffees, or much higher quality coffees, and otherwise known in 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 the context of of uh, most coffee growing areas as fully washed coffee. And what and does that mean, fully washed? Fully, fully washed means it's these are coffees that are that are brought in, they they're harvested and they're processed within six hours of harvest because they start to deteriorate in quality. And that they go through a whole process of what we call wet milling, which is um, uh, depulping, uh, soaking, fermenting overnight, uh, then going through a full, fully washed, and then pre-dried, and and then uh, shade shade dried, and and then sun dried. 
and and it's a it's a whole long process that produces a much higher quality coffee, a much better tasting coffee in the end. Uh, and it's very labor intensive, and that's that's again why a country like Burundi or Rwanda, with a lot of labor. Uh, available has been so successful in producing some of the best coffees in the world. So I'm curious, what inspired MSU to get involved with these coffee industries in Burundi and Rwanda? You know, uh, MSU is, is at the forefront when it comes to value chain development. Has been for for many years. Uh, even if you look at our business school, where where supply chain management is. Is is big. That's uh, is is one of the best in the country. That's the sort of those are the resources that an MSU brings to bear. Plus, you you look at our international portfolio. It's one of the most internationalized universities in the world, uh, especially in agriculture and especially in Africa. And so, uh, a large group of folks, of faculty who who have interest and experience in these countries with value chain development, with agriculture, uh, and then and then looking and working with the communities there, focusing on many things. You know, we do uh, research in food security. We do, uh, we, we do uh, all, all kinds of, uh, you know, climate change work and so forth now. Uh, but when it comes right down to it, it's the, the agriculture uh, and, uh, and looking for ways to help Agriculture succeed and smallholders to produce higher incomes, and in the context of the highlands of of, of East Africa, uh, coffee is is a is a natural uh, target and and has been very successful for that reason. So many of us have worked in places like Rwanda and Burundi through our entire careers, and so this is just the next evolution. And finally, can you talk about MSU's Global Agri-Food Systems Development Initiative? Um, that, that's a kind of a, I would say, a broad uh, initiative that is a, it's a, it's a composite of quite a number of projects that we have uh, in sustainable agri-food systems, and much of that is focused on on value chains, uh, access for smallholders to those global markets. Uh, we have a whole area that's focused on uh, on food safety because that's for for many suppliers, especially in things like products like fruits and vegetables, uh, uh, food safety is is the major issue and that's the major obstacle for many many of the smallholder producers around the world is how do you produce safe food and still high quality uh and uh, that meets in international standards so we're working we're working now in Thailand Vietnam uh Rwanda and Burundi uh, have had major programs in Ethiopia and Madagascar is currently in in Zambia we're we're uh, um, literally, uh, India, a huge program just wrapping up now, a fantastic program in India, working with smallholders for exports. And that's basically, those are the sorts of things that we're doing with uh, through this initiative. And do you think with these projects, that, you know, going back to um, your work with, with coffee farmers in Rwanda and Burundi, do you think that the work that MSU done, has, has been doing can be done in a way in which soon we can step away and they can take the knowledge that they've learned and be able to function on their own without us needing to, you know, watch mm -hmm. over them and, and help them along the way? Well, that's always, that's, that's the goal. 
is, is sustainable development. And, and in the end, the answer to that question is yes. And uh, in the case of of Rwanda, we're just wrapping up a second project there, uh, but that that project has been led in many ways now by by the Rwandans themselves. Looking at Burundi, uh, the changes that have come about, I have no doubt that there will be difficulties and uh, a period of uh, sort of uh, regrouping and and uh, and and learning, but I think. We've given, we've helped to provide the, the foundation for uh, um, very serious and uh, successful development in the future. Well, in the studio is Dan Clay. He's the director of MSU's Global Programs and Sustainable Agri-Food Systems, and he was here to talk about a program in Africa to help sustainable coffee production. Dan Clay, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. More variety than you'll hear on any other station. Listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Aw, come back, cuddle bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In the studio is Jason Moser. He is a psychology professor and lead researcher on an MSU study that looks into the difference between people who learn from their mistakes and those that do not. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So what did you find in the study? What is the big difference between people that learn from their mistakes and those that don't? Well, our contribution to this uh, research was to look at the brain patterns that differentiate people who think that they can learn from their mistakes and people who think they, they can't. Um, and we were really looking at how they process in their brain their mistakes specifically. Um, so what we really found, the cool part of the study um, that I find most exciting is that within a quarter of a second of making a mistake, these two people, these two types of people look quite different. The people who think they can learn from their mistakes, these growth-minded people, they pay much more attention to their mistakes within a quarter of, of a second of making their mistake compared to people who think they can't learn from their mistakes and that their intelligence is fixed. So do you think that people 
can overcome these these brain reactions? Can they teach themselves to not have, you know, for those that, that aren't learning from their mistakes, can they change that over time? It's a great question, and there is quite a bit of research on training people to have more of this growth mindset or the I think I can mentality. And it does seem to work for children and adolescents in particular. Uh, there are lots of school programs that train kids to learn from their mistakes, pay attention to their mistakes, think they can actually change their achievement. And we are actually running a study right now in our lab to follow this up where we actually induce a growth mindset or a fixed mindset by just having people read a, um, a simple bogus research article about one says, hey, your intelligence is fixed, it's inborn, there's nothing you can do about it, versus the other article which says your intelligence is changeable, you can learn and get better through experience and see if that has an impact on their brain activity. It would be the first of its kind. Nobody's looked at the brain in, uh, in inducing mindset. Interesting. So talk about the training programs that, that try to help people overcome, let's say, if they don't learn from their mistakes right away. What are those training programs like? Well, they, this, that research is, has been spearheaded for many years now by uh, Carol Dweck, who's at Stanford University. And those programs are targeted at school-age children, and they really help them uh, learn that their intelligence and their abilities more generally are changeable, and that through experience and through learning, they can get better. Um, so they really focus on those sorts, of, those sorts of groups. But, I mean, they've actually applied this idea of changing your mindset about lots of different abilities, not just to, to children in, in schools, um, but also to, there's a recent article in the, the journal Science looking at um, changing people's attitudes about um, out-group me members like Israelis versus Palestinians. So they, they've really been taking this, um, this idea of how, how are people's abilities or what are people's um, beliefs about themselves like? Are they really rigid or are they really flexible? And flexible is generally better. And are there environmental factors that influence that brain development to someone that learns from their mistakes sort of way and those that do not? Environmental factors, a lot of this is, is actually not well known. Um, we know that early in life you can ask children, hey, do you think you can learn from your mistakes? Do you think your intelligence is changeable or um, do you not? And very young age, they can tell you one way or the other. Um, but in terms of environmental experiences that, um, that impact how you learn from their mistakes, I don't think we know a whole heck of a lot about that. And I'm curious, when you were doing this study, what was the ratio um, of people that learn from their mistakes and those that do not? Another great, great question. And the, the classic idea is that there are these two groups, right? There are people who think they can learn from their mistakes, and there are people who think they can't. And what we've seen in, in our research and what I think is, is also out there in the, uh, the literature is that really it's kind of a continuum. So you can be somebody who's really, really fixed, thinking that there's nothing you can do about your intelligence or your abilities. They're completely fixed, and people way at the other end who think that their abilities are completely changeable, malleable, they can learn and change with experience, and then a lot of us are in between. So we, we kind of think it, it could go either way, depending. So what did you find to be the most interesting part of the study, or what surprised you the most? What surprised me the most was really that this, really it's a higher order belief, you know, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our abilities. Um, do we think our abilities are changeable or not? Kind of this innate versus uh, nature versus nurture, in, in a sense, um, that that higher order 
thinking process, that belief affects or is related to at such a fundamental level how your brain processes mistakes. I mean, that that is the most interesting aspect of it. And on top of that, the fact that what we found was not only did their brains differ uh, at this very basic level, I mean, this, this brain wave that we got from this task is uh, we uh, can get it from a very simple task. They just are pressing buttons to a very simple, boring task. And when they slip and mess up, they, uh, they make a mistake and they have this brain response. And that brain response not only differentiate these groups, but it also predicted who did better after a mistake. So after you make a mistake, what oftentimes happens if you're paying attention is you do well on the next trial, right? So you actually correct your mistake right away. And people who had this more flexible mindset corrected their mistake right away. And that brain activity that was bigger for them, that attention brain activity, exactly explained why they did better on the next trial. So that was really the power of it there. Well, in the studio is Jason Moser. He's an MSU psychology professor, and he was here to talk about his research that found the difference between people who learn from their mistakes and those that do not. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. All right. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. I'm out of here. Th- thanks again, man. It was good. Wait, time. you were uh, you were hitting it pretty hard tonight. Are you, are you good to drive? Heck yeah! I am amazing at driving. Yeah, man. You sure? I mean, I can call a cab, or we fine. can uh, we can get somebody to take you home. Yeah, you know? yeah. Don't worry. I'm good. Okay. Uh, hey, text me when you get back. Okay. Stop right there. This is stupid. He's drunk. Friends don't let friends drink and drive ever. A message from 88.9 The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., the Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Only on Impact Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane, in a time when FM is played by the same 15 songs, an army of new songs are called to battle. And only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till 10. Sit or spin. Only on Impact 89 FM. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Art Prize ends this weekend in Grand Rapids. To talk about the event is Brian Birch. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hi, thanks for having me. So first off, tell us what is Art Prize and how did it begin? Oh my gosh, what is Art Prize? Art Prize is a competition. It's a radically open social art experiment, and it's really focused on expanding and broadening uh, the conversation about contemporary art. And it's... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go it, ahead. It started as this idea with, with Rick DeVos, and he wanted to create an opportunity for uh, people to talk about something. Originally, it was films, and it effectively turned into uh, a contemporary art event. And uh, it, we've been doing this for about three years, and uh, it's been an, kind of an epic conversation that's turned into. And what do you mean by a social art experiment? Well, people are encouraged to talk about art. Um, Our measure of success is really how uh, innovative the artists are and how creative the artists can be. And as a result, 
how much the rest of us, the general population, uh, talk about the art. So uh, we will have uh, roughly about half a million people come through downtown Grand Rapids, and uh, they're all talking about contemporary art, and it's it's unlike any other place um, that you know, we, we've ever seen. I mean, it's it's no one else talks about art in this quantity um, than in Grand Rapids during Art Prize. It's amazing. And I understand that that it's it's the people that go to the event that that are that vote on who wins and who doesn't. Yeah, the voting is really important. It's a, kind of that starting point for the conversation. Um, you, you hear people frequently um, in the coffee houses and restaurants and just on the streets asking, so what, what did you vote for? Oh, I voted for this. Oh, that's great. Well, why? Why did you vote for that? And then you can, that's an entry point. Now, you know, each person has a different opinion of what is art and what is not art, and what is good and what is bad. And Art Prize uh, doesn't curate any of the art, so we don't make a judgment call uh, at the beginning. We, in fact, we don't make a judgment call at all on what is good or bad art. All of this is decided by uh, a public vote, and um, you know, the, the people really have that opportunity to have a voice and decide on their own uh, what they feel uh, best represents, um, uh, I guess, contemporary art uh, at the time. So, um, yeah, we, we ended up being just this enabler of a conversation more than anything else. And what have been some of your favorite art prize pieces over the years? Oh, wow. Um, well, I mean, we've been doing this for three years. I, I, I can remember last year, um, for me personally, I wasn't with the organization yet, but, you know, Belly Lou's piece, Lure Wave, was just a fantastic uh, example of uh, this uh, idea that we're all connected in some way and that we all have relationships with each other and that each one of us um, is tied. And she visualized that with uh, string and thread and spindles. And it was just a really beautiful piece. And these just red string. It was, just, it was very cool. Um, I, I, really, I really love that piece. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's been so many pieces. It's hard to they all kind of run together now. There's there's 1,582 artists this year. Last year we had 1,700, and the year before we had 1,200. So I mean, it's it's this huge, huge conversation with so many ideas and so many voices participating. So Art Prize began, as you said, three years ago, and that was just a few months after the recession started. Can you talk about the timing of everything and how Art Prize impacted Grand Rapids and the state during um, the time of an economic downturn? Um, well, we're not, Art Prize really isn't focused on economic development. Um, you know, our, our goal is really to focus on how people talk about art and how people engage with art and how, um, how people investigate ideas and how ideas come together and kind of rub together and create new ideas. And so the, the, any economic benefit has really been a kind of an accidental or a secondary benefit. I mean, I think most of the people who founded this idea, this, this event, um, you know, would, would, would say the scale of this was not expected. Um, the, 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 the idea that literally hundreds of thousands of people would come talk about contemporary art, uh, was not the original idea, but, um, it, it has had a positive impact. Um, we haven't measured that, and, and I don't expect we, uh, Art Prize will be measuring that, but um, we, we think that it's been very good for the community. Um, 
in, in many ways, um, most importantly in the, in the, in the area of uh, just this conversation about contemporary art and bringing more people into that conversation. And how would you say Art Prize is unique from other art competitions? We're unique just by the, the point that we have uh, our, our largest prizes are decided by public vote. Um, there's very few in, in the world that actually use that mechanism to engage in a, in a, in a, in a population. Um, we, we, do, we do give away an enormous amount of, of prize money, uh, but that really serves as a catalyst for the other function, and that is to, to really facilitate this conversation. And, and, and it's, it's been working. So, I mean, it's, it gets the attention of people, and then that gets the attention of more people, and then it just grows and grows and grows. So uh, we've built that over time. And um, we don't think that the other competitions are bad in any way. I mean, a juried competition is just that. It's a juried competition. We don't think it's bad and it's different, and we're doing something different, and, and we kind of feel that that's okay. Well, on the phone is Brian Birch. He's with Art Prize. And Art Prize ends this weekend in Grand Rapids. For more information, you can go to artprize.org. Brian, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hey, thank you for having me. All right, bye-bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure on Hello? You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Carl, and you're going to have to help me with your last name. How do you pronounce your last name, sir? It's Yanyama. Yanyama. So Carl Yanyama is on the phone, and he is the author of The Expeditions. Welcome to the show, Carl. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, how do you talk, tell me a little about a little bit about this book, The Expeditions? Well, it's a historical novel. It's set in uh, 1844. It's about a uh, minister from Massachusetts and his son. Um, his son basically runs away from home and travels to Michigan. I guess you'd say in search of adventure. And uh, his his minister father travels after him to try to track him down. And it's the story of their separate uh, journeys. And what inspired you to write this book? Well, uh, I grew up in the Detroit area, um, so I'd always wanted to write about Michigan and uh, Michigan history. Um, the, 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 the boy, the protagonist of the novel, is interested in science, and um, I'm a researcher by trade. In my day job, I work as a, as a robotics researcher at MIT. So, you know, I, was, I saw it as a way to combine my kind of dual interest in history and science and uh, put it in a way, um, a format, you know, that appealed to me. I'm a big fan of fiction and literary fiction in particular. So you say you're a research scientist at MIT. How do you find time to write? Uh, I wake up early. I've got two small kids as well. So the only time that it's quiet in the house is between about... Uh, 5 a.m. and 6.30, so uh, that's when I do my writing. Well, without further ado, would you be willing to read an excerpt from your book, The Expeditions? Sure, be happy to. Uh, this is just a short excerpt from the book. It's um, told from the point of view of, uh, of the father uh, that I just mentioned, the minister, and he has just arrived in Detroit, and uh, he's in kind of bad shape. He's, he's come down with um, what they call the time consumption, tuberculosis. And he's also having strange visions that he can't quite explain. And to sort of remedy this, he's been taking these uh, toothache medication tablets, the patent medicine, which is basically opium. So I'm going to read a short section, 
of Minister Stone's first day in Detroit. Um, he's very sick, and he's decided to see a doctor, which at that time basically meant getting some blood lead. So this is from the expedition. In Detroit, Reverend Stone took a windowless room on Miami Avenue and collapsed into bed, his throat torn to wet shreds, the ceiling blurring before his eyes, his ears feeling like they were stuffed with tow. Sleep washed over him, his waking hours obscured by feverish daydreams. On Saturday, he pulled himself upright and stepped slowly down to the street. Sunlight pierced his eyes. He stumbled along the sidewalk as if dragged by a team of horses. The surgeon was a cheery, bewhiskered Englishman wearing a black linen coat, stiff with bloody stains. He ushered the minister into a makeshift operating theater in his parlor, seated him in a high-backed chair fitted with leather straps. The floor was strewn with sawdust. The surgeon laid two calloused fingers alongside Reverend Stone's neck. The man grunted. You feel set to burst. I had a coughing spell on the steamboat. I felt, Reverend Stone paused, I felt as though I was ascending into the heavens. The surgeon chuckled. I suspect you'll remain earthbound for some hours yet. Is this a common occurrence? Reverend Stone thought to tell the man about his visions of souls, the ghostly colored nimbuses. No, it's rare. The man squinted into Reverend Stone's ears, pinched his earlobes. Besides the consumption, I'd hazard you have a touch of the milk sickness. It can cause weakness, queer sights. Over time, it can cause a crippling of one's mental powers. Of course, if you're interested in a professional diagnosis, I can supply one for $2. I don't think that'll be required. Then, he cupped Reverend Stone's shirt sleeve and from a coat pocket withdrew a leather thong, cinched the minister's arm. He tapped the crook of his elbow until a thick blue vein rose like a worm beneath the skin. The surgeon turned to a sideboard and a tarnished pewter tray filled with instruments. A moment later, Reverend Stone heard the quick scuff of a blade being stropped. Outside the window, a hatless native stood talking to a ruddy Irish constable, their peculiar accents audible in the quiet room. Every nation of the world, Reverend Stone thought, here at the country's edge. The notion confused him somehow. He glanced at the surgeon, and as he did, an airiness lifted him, a pink haze surrounding the man's form. Reverend Stone drew a sharp breath. Now then, the surgeon tapped the minister's arm. He pressed the steel lancet against the vein, and for an instant the split skin showed. Then a scarlet line welled and thickened. Blood dripped down Reverend Stone's forearm and spattered on the sawdust. He watched for a moment, then turned away. I'll take just enough to settle your pulse. The surgeon turned to his instruments, whistling a lilting child's tune. Pop goes the weasel. Reverend Stone wondered, as the seconds passed, how much blood it might take to calm his heart. He imagined his lips turning gray, his fingers stiffening as sawdust clotted around him, the surgeon whistling all the while. A strange euphoria overtook him. Reverend Stone wished he had a tin of tablets, then realized he didn't need them. As blood drained from his arm, the minister felt as though his body was rising from the chair up to the parlor ceiling, then through it into the cloudless blue sky. And that's from the expedition. So on the, on the phone for the Michigan Storytelling segment is Carl Yagnuma, and he was reading from his book, The Expeditions. So I'm curious, what type of research did you have to do for this book? Oh, you know, I've always been interested in Michigan history, so I didn't really even view it as research. I've read a lot of, um, uh, you know, historical well, novels, but also um, primary sources set in Michigan and Detroit in the mid-19th century. And so I kind of picked up a lot of um, details here and there just in my reading, and this 
novel was a great chance to sort of use all this uh, cool information I learned over the years. And how does this book differ from other books that you've written? Well, the only other book I've uh, written is a book of short stories, and so the form was totally different. You know, um, uh, this was uh, uh, an experiment for me, um, working with this much larger format, and uh, you know, I found it really hard um, at first. But uh, uh, the more I got into it, the more I enjoyed, you know, working in the novel as opposed to the shorter stories. Um, several of my short stories, though, are also historical and also set in Michigan, so they did have that in common. And you currently do not live in the state right now, correct? No, right now I live in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, I spend a little bit of time in Washington, D.C., but I visit Michigan at least uh, twice a year. My parents are still in Shelby Township. I see. So I find it interesting that, that um, you are a research scientist at MIT, yet still make time to write. You say you wake up early even though you have a family. You still make time to to make it work. So I'm curious, what is your favorite part about the writing process, and why is it important for you to keep that in your life? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't do it if, uh, if I didn't really enjoy it. I mean, ultimately, it's a, it's, it's, it's a relaxing thing to do. It's very pleasurable. I think anyone who has kids um, and young kids can appreciate the pleasure you get just from having a couple hours of quiet to yourself. Um, so it's that, I think, as much as anything. But... Um, you know, I've, I've, I've enjoyed writing since I was a kid, and so I think it's one of those things that um, um, I've always had as, as a hobby or um, sort of a passion. Well, on the phone is Carl Yagnema, and he is the author of The Expeditions and was featured tonight on the Michigan Storytelling segment. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. And in world news today, the first phase of jury selection is underway for the man accused of trying to blow up a Detroit-bound airliner on Christmas 2009. According to Michigan Radio, so far, five of the 17 jurors' questions have been excused. Umar Farouk Abdulmatab shouted, Sheikh Anwar is alive upon entering the courtroom. He also said, I will defend Muhammad and liken the U.S. to a cancer. In national news today, Apple has unveiled the latest iteration on its iPhone, according to the BBC. The iPhone 4S, as the model will be known, boasts an improved camera and significantly extended battery life. The iPhone 4S, which will go on sale October 14th, will be available in 16-gig, 32-gig, and 64-gig models, both in black and white. And in local news today, Michigan State University President Luana K. Simon condemned a string of racial incidents that have erupted on campus, according to the Detroit News. Michigan State University's Black Student Alliance is actually holding a meeting right now that started at 745 in Conrad Hall. The incidents began last month when a student cleaning one of the university's chemistry labs found a black doll hanging from a makeshift noose. More incidents continued last week when an Acres Hall student reported that someone had written a racial slur on a dorm room or on a dorm room's door dry erase board. The room had four occupants, but only one was an African American student. A few days later, students reported the N word written on a wall at Armstrong Hall, which is typically occupied by freshmen. Students are saying that these are hate crimes. And for Exposure, I'm your host, Emily Fox. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. To keep updated on what happens on Exposure every week, you can follow on impact89fm.org, as well as Facebook and Twitter. The account is Impact Exposure. Thank you so much for listening tonight. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.